gates open, off and Stiley Sensory stayed in the gate. There's Bo Rogue being set alight immediately by Cyril Small and racing to the lead. But Bo Rogue won't give up, he's still in front. Groucho's grabbing him now. Groucho coming at Bo Rogue, don't play, getting a rails run. Bo Rogue in front, he's got a heart as big as himself. He'll win, Bo Rogue! Bo Rogue has cracked it at last. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. The Canterbury Guineas was superseded by the Randwick Guineas in 2006, sparking a little nostalgia for old-timers like me. Here's a little Canterbury Guineas trivia. Only a small number of fillies won the race, but there was one amazing sequence between 1985 and 1989 when four fillies prevailed. 1985 it was Spirit of Kingston for Bob Hoisted and John Marshall. 1986 brought a major shock when Dole Chesser at 50 to 1 won the race for Frank Lewis and jockey John Miller. It was Dole Chesser's only win in 30 starts. In 1987 the top New Zealand filly Tidal Light dominated the race at a shade of odds on for trainer Jim Gibbs and jockey Lance O'Sullivan. Two years later the New Zealand bred Riverina Charm won the guineas for Brian Mayfield-Smith and Ron Quinton. It was nine years before Tycoon Lil gave the Phillies another Canterbury Guineas triumph. Now it's called the Randwick Guineas and the 2022 edition comes up with a purse of $1 million on March the 5th. Former top jockey, perennial raconteur and all-round good bloke Johnny Letts is now living the quiet life in his hometown of Adelaide. John quit the saddle in 1988 with 2,300 wins and two Melbourne Cups on his CV. Little did he know what the future had in store. Four years after finishing his riding career with the win at Cheltenham on a horse called Yali Prince, Letzi began a television adventure which would involve him with two networks, seven and ten, for a total of 21 years. His role was performed on horseback and required him to do a post-race interview with every winning jockey over the four days of the Melbourne Cup Carnival. His mount for many years was a lovable little quarter horse called Banjo, who on occasions looked as though he wanted to ask a question or two himself. By the end of the carnival each year, Letzi and Banjo became almost as well-known as the big race winners. In 2013, ill health forced John's retirement from a number of roles he was filling within the racing industry. He battled with some serious health issues for a couple of years and the old sparkle went missing. Nine years on and at 78 years of age, the irrepressible Johnny Letts has bounced back with a vengeance. I recently stumbled upon an interview I did with him in the early days of the website, and I can't resist the temptation to give it another run. This podcast was recorded over three years ago, and we found him in pretty good shape. I'm in real good shape, John. Uh, a worry there for a while, for a couple of uh, couple of years there was a few worries for me, but um, got over that all right. That, uh, that's all behind me now, and, uh, and it feels just like um, <laughs> a resurgence. Mm, that's exactly what it is. I know yes. uh, you and Greg Miles were ambassadors uh, carting the Melbourne Cup all over South Australia recently, and Miles, he told me, you haven't slowed down one bit. No, no, I haven't, John. I, 
I actually, I actually, um, it, I, I prefer to be back writing, really, because I'm doing more now than what I was doing <laughs> when I was, I was writing. I just yeah. don't seem to get any time. But, um, but the, the stuff that I do, John, I do for good causes. I don't, you know, I don't waste time. I don't no, waste time. No. John, let's go back to those wonderful days when the Melbourne Cup was being run. You were working for Channel 10 or Channel 7. Where would you and Banjo position yourselves while the race was in progress? Well, John, we had a, we had a favourite spot, Banjo and I. We, we, we ran at 1600 at Flemington. Mm. Uh, we ran at 1200 at Mooney Valley. Uh, we were at about 1400 at Caulfield. Mm. And Sandown, we were just out of the straight because there was a bit of a run on after um, and give them time to pull up. But yeah. we had our favourite spots. Banjo always knew where to go because he was um, – I, I really feel, John, and I, I've said to a lot of people, you know, I said if, if Banjo could have been able to speak, I said I'd have been out of the job because he was so good. Yeah. He was so good. He but really, he couldn't talk. He knew his the job only thing he couldn't do was talk. Yeah. So he had to have me. Yeah. <laughs> well, John, you'd head straight for the winner as the Melbourne Cup field was pulling up and you got to witness firsthand those first adrenaline charge moments when a jockey realises he's won the Cup. Who was the most emotional of the 21 jockeys you interviewed after Melbourne Cups? John, there was, there was, there was some... I've got three or four in a category of that category. Damien, of course, we will always remember because of his brother Jason, you know, being fatally injured that week. Mm. Uh, that was very emotional for me because I did ride against Damien's father, Ray, and I knew him very well. And unfortunately, Ray was uh, killed in a, a race accident. Um, but that was very emotional for me. Um, the other one was when Blake Shin won it because, as you know, Blake's father, Gerald, was a jockey. And he passed on before he, he saw his son win a Melbourne Cup. Uh, Kieran McAvoy, because Kieran's our own, uh, our own locally bred boy here from Streaky Bay, and we're very, very proud of him. And he, him winning it when he was 20 years of age, I was at the races with his grandfather, and I was a great friend of his grandfather. And, but I, I rode against his dad, Phil, and I rode against Tony and Darren and all of them. And um, it was funny, you know, John, because... Oh, Billy Holland was his grandfather, and he just loved young Karen. He, they, they were just they were just bonded. And I, I, I was at the races. So I was coming in on banjo, and Karen had won the cup. And they were going to present the trophy uh, out in the mounting yard, and, and, and Bill was standing trying to climb over the fence, and the security were pushing him back. <laughs> and 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 I can thank Robbie Lang for this because I, I, as I was coming in on banjo, I seen him pushing Bill back, and I thought. He, he, he's come to Melbourne to see his grandson ride. Like, Brew wasn't given a good chance in the race, really. And, and, and he's going to miss it. I, I want him to have it. And Robbie was walking past, and I said to Robbie, where are you going? He said, I'm going home. I said, can I have your pass to get in the mountain yard? He said, yeah, sure. So I went over the fence and gave it to Bill. Mm. I said, now, go around and come in the gate. So he did. So he, he, he sent his grandson win the Melbourne Cup. You know, mm. that was very, very special to me, mm. uh, being very close friends to the family. Um, Glenn Boss was another one the third time John when he went on Maccabi Diva um, I was waiting around at the 1400 and, and Bossy came right around to the 1400 and he, he had his arm, re arm round her neck and he, he, he was just emotionally drained he was so emotionally drained I mean he'd done it before mm. but it was nothing like this this was, this was history this was something that 
we might never see again. And, and, and it's, I can't get emotional because, as you know, and you, you've done a lot of interviews, you can't get emotional with the person because mm. it just ruins the whole thing, doesn't it? Mm, absolutely. You know, yeah. John, if you had to pick one race, one jockey, one ride where they overcame unbelievable pressure, that's the one for me. Glenn Boss must have ice water in his veins. That yeah. race was going to a worldwide television audience. As you said, that mayor had just created a piece of history that may never be duplicated, and yet his ride in that race, John, was as cold and as patient and as composed as any ride of his career. John, I'll tell you something about Glenn when I spoke to him, and I suppose you could, you could say that category would beat would beat by, uh, Damien by, say, half a percentage. That's, that's mm. all in, in the emotion stakes. Um, but I can tell you something about Glenn. He, he, he said to me, go back and have a look at the races that she won the three Melbourne Cups. Mm. He said, and have a look at the position I was in every time. He said, I was just about in the same position every time. Mm. Have you ever thought about going back, John, and having a look? Mm. Well, I've seen seen all three, and I agree. She she was certainly not on the pace in any of them, was she? No, he said said it was like someone had planned a spot for me, Mm. and I was going to get that spot in those three Melbourne Cups. He said, and I got that spot every time. He said, and it just, everything worked out. It was like a rerun. And uh, I went back and looked over and thought, wow, bossy, you know, you were spot on, boy. Mm. John, your toughest interview post-Melbourne Cup was in 2006 when the Japanese horse Delta Blues got there in a photo finish, ridden by my good friend Yasunari Iwata. (laughs) Well, you know what? I should have had you doing the interview because you knew his name. (laughs) He couldn't speak one solitary word of English. <laughs> he, he he couldn't, John. And you know it was it was it was a, a, a and, and you know yourself when when you're doing interviews. I, I never interviewed. We used to do uh, thirty-seven interviews a week uh, in that week, yeah. and I would never I would never ever um, get prepared for one. You know I would never mm. ever rehearse it because you know in racing it can certainly turn around very quickly. The best of them can get beat. And if, if you, set your, you set your sights on your interview on interviewing, say, well, look, Octagon was going to win. It's going to be easy. I'll just talk to Darren Beedman and say, you know, this and that. But sometimes it doesn't work that way no. and something might get up. So all of a sudden everything is put, put out of order. Uh, so I never, ever, never, ever um, rehearsed or, or, or thought of the winner before the race. I just did it, you know, cold, the, more or less ad lib. Yeah. Ad lib, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, just did that lip. But that, but that, that race, John, leading into that, you know, a couple of weeks before there was Delta Blues and Pop Rock were in the Caulfield Cup and Nashville Willow was riding Delta Blues mm. and, 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 and Damien was riding, Damien Oliver was riding Pop Rock. And, you know, and I thought, oh, a couple of good runs, you know, they got a chance in the Melbourne Cup. Japan's got a chance in the Melbourne Cup. Uh, but I went through all the jockeys and I just, I, I just went, I thought, oh, yes, um, uh, Frankie Dettori speaks English, uh, Gerard Mosse, you know, all of mm. the other guys, you know, all speak. And I thought, you know, uh, Damien, he's, well, Damien's done the interviews before. Uh, Nash is writing uh, Delta Blues. I thought, you know, there's, there's no problem with any language barrier. I uh, didn't know the winner, didn't have any idea of the winner. But I, a week before, they put Yasunari Iwata on, 
on Delta Blues, and I thought, no, this this couldn't possibly happen. Uh, this horse couldn't possibly win with the Japanese rider on him mm-hmm. um, because, y- you know, he, the Japanese rider hadn't ridden much. Well, I think he only had one or two rides against Australian jockeys before mm-hmm. before that race. Um, and I thought, no, he couldn't win. So I, I, sp- <coughs> excuse me, I spoke to the boys in the studio at Channel mm-hmm. 7 and Greg was calling the races at the time, Greg Miles, and I was talking to Bruce McAvaney up there because I do have contact on the pony because I've, I've got an earplug mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and a microphone. I said to Bruce, I said, Bruce, just in case, <clears throat> I said um, they put uh, Iwata on, on, on Delta Blues, just in case it wins, I said, um, does anyone know any... Japanese <laughs> and Bruce said well I don't and there's always one in the outside broadcast man that knows you know there's always someone there mm. uh, and there's a guy in the background said I do let's see I said yeah what, are, what, what do you know he said sayonara and uh, uh, konnichiwa yeah. And I said, what does that mean? He said, that says hello and goodbye. <laughs> I said, what order? He said, I don't know. <laughs> so I'm on, the, I'm on the pony going to the barrier while this is happening. Yeah. And, and I thought, sayonara, konnichiwa. I don't know what order, but he, he can't win anyway, so mm. why should I worry? Mm. Anyway, Greg knew. Greg knew that I never knew any, English, uh, any, any Japanese. And, and, you know, the, the race went something like from about – the 100 metres, because I can hear the race, but I can't see it. Mm. And I'm around the back at the mile, and then the race went something like, he said, Japan's fighting out the Melbourne Cup. He said, Delta Blues is in front. He said, Pop Rock's gone up to join him. He said, Delta Blues is ahead in front. Pop Rock's joined him. Ollie's gone for the whip. And I thought, please, Ollie, hit him an extra one. <laughs> an extra one. Yes. Anyway, they went over the line, and Greg said, Japan's won the Melbourne Cup. And I said, please, Greg, in my mind, I said, please, Greg, say that Pop Rock's got up. Mm. And he said... Delta Blues has hung on. And I thought, yeah. oh, no. Oh, and so around the corner comes uh, Iwata. Yep. And I canter over to him on banjo. I have to point banjo at the horse, and he knows where to go. And he tore over to the horse, and I pointed the microphone at him, and I said, winner. He said, winner. And I said, uh, happy? He said, happy. And then he took off. <laughs> and that was it. So I taught him two words of English, and he said nothing to me. <laughs> yeah. But it was... Uh, that was the one, John, and you know yourself, uh, in an industry where mistakes are picked up easy, and I always say about the racing industry, um, mistakes are picked up easy, rumours go around the race course faster than the horses sometimes, Don't they? And, yeah. and it's true, isn't it? Yeah. But, you know, Bill Collins, the late and great Bill Collins, you know, uh, when, he, when, he, when he said at Mooney Valley, Kingston Town cannot win, mm. and he won. Yeah. Uh, Greg Miles, I loved his call when he called. He said, a champion becomes a legend mm. with, with uh, um, Maccabi Diva. Mm. And then, of course, and then I thought, now what's mine? And, you know, I keep getting reminded. And this is it, the Japanese interview. <laughs> so the three of us have got, well, uh, the three of us have got something to go to the grave with. <laughs> yeah. John's stories about that wonderful little stock horse banjo a legend. Did he ever yes. do one thing wrong in 21 Never, years? ever, John. Did he ever pig root? No, never. <laughs> never, ever pig root. But it was a funny thing, John, because I, had, I was working for the, the uh, Melbourne Cup Tour at a time and, and Pado, Johnny Patterson owned him mm. and his name was uh, 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 Trawathic Impulse. Yeah. Now, that is a stock horse registration and he was a stock horse. Yeah. Now... 
he put he, he put Greg Hall on him one day and he wouldn't go and he just stood there and reared up and then he put uh, Claire Bird on him and he bolted with, I think with Claire mm-hmm. uh, Peter Hutchison rode him and he and he wouldn't uh, and he took off with him and bolted mm-hmm. uh, but John there was a secret to him it was he knew the job don't try and make him do anything different and you know the Melbourne Cup and I don't know if you noticed ever before the Melbourne Cup they would always go out a long time before the race. Now, actually, that was a part of Banjo's fault because when they blew the blew, blew the, uh, the, uh, the the trumpet, you know, the the, the post call, the post the call to yeah. go out onto the track, mm. I had the guys at the gate at Flemington lined up to open the gates because I knew Paddo used him when I wasn't there, and Paddo would always be the lead. He, he was he was the master. He was our master. He was the head the head clerk of the course, and Paddo would always go out first on Banjo when I wasn't there, mm. and he'd work at the meeting, say, on the Wednesdays or whatever, but Banjo would always take the number one horse out. Mm. So Banjo thought, well, I don't care if it's a Melbourne Cup or not. I'm still going out first. <laughs> but it wasn't his job. He was only the interviewer this yeah, right. So anyway, up comes the post call, and of course, and then the blokes would open the gate, Bans would lift his head up from eating the grass in the mountain yard, mm. and he'd head for the gate, just walk over, and, and then we'd get into the, into the, into the uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, down the roses, where we go down the roses, yeah. the, uh, the, the path to glory, and, mm. and he'd can around down there, and he'd go out on the track at a full canter, John, at the end, you know how it spears mm. to the left? Mm. He would go out that gate at a full canter, and as soon as he got out there, all the guys, all the workmen, all the groundsmen would shut the gates and stop people going across the track because the, they thought the field was coming out. Mm. But it wasn't. It was only banjo. Yeah. And that, that, that field went out on the Melbourne Cup track sometimes 10 minutes before they should have. Yeah. Because they blew, the, they blew the, the post, you know, mm. and, uh, and he would think, oh, well, I'm out. I'm first out. Out I go. So and they he, closed, closed it all off. So he did do something wrong in that 21 years. <laughs> But it wasn't too serious. (laughs) John, you know, it was great because people loved him. And, you know, Peter Donegan and Francesca Kamani and and Bruce McIlvaney, when we got to Melbourne every year and and we did the Cox Plate, of course, and Caulfield and all of those meetings, Mm. but they'd all have apples. Channel 7 always had a bag of apples for him. Mm. Um, The curator, he wasn't the most favoured horse with the curator, with Mm. Mick Goody, because... When when he uh, when we got to the races, you know how the roses all bloom on on the day, yeah, uh, on the Melbourne Cup week. Well, what he would do there was there was different petitions in front of his stall, different parts, and each each meeting he would eat the roses off of them. So the first day he would eat he would eat about five meters of roses. Second day he'd eat five meters. Uh, of roses, yeah. and then on the third day, which was the uh, uh, ladies' day, he'd eat the roses, and then on the last day, when there was only one lot left, he'd clean them up. <laughs> <laughs> so he cleaned up the whole lot, and the curio, he, he said, I'll catch, Mick said to me one day, I'll catch that pony of yours one day. I said, you want to be quick? I said, I've known him 20 years, and I can't catch him. <laughs> now, John, he, he was, as I said, the stories are legend about him. Sadly, he's gone to the big corral in the sky. Yeah, John, that was one of my saddest days in my life. And, you know, um, he, was, he, he was buried as Banjo Patterson. Um, as I told you, his name was Trewarrick Impulse, but he was owned by Johnny Patterson. And 
I could never pronounce his name. And I said to Pato, I said, Pato, I'm going to change this horse's name. I said, people ask me, what's his name? And I say, Trawarik Impulse. And then they'd say, how do you spell it? Hmm. And I'd say, well, how would I know? <laughs> You know? <laughs> That's right. And, and, I, and I said to Pat, why don't we just call him Banjo? Mm. He said, well, call him Banjo. Call him what you like. He said, he's yours. Mm. And like, he more or less give me Banjo. Mm. He said, he's your horse. He said, and, and he said, after the things that have happened with other, right, he said, no one to ever, that horse will never, ever go onto the track again after those few incidents they had with other riders. He'd mm. never go on the track again with any other rider. And he never. Johnny, let's let's go right back in your life. You probably wouldn't have become an apprentice jockey had it not been for a school teacher called Mr. Manning. That's right. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Well, John, I, I, I was I was uh, I wasn't real good at school. I was pretty ordinary at school, and and, and I finished up. I went to seven schools, and and I just kept running away. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, no, I didn't. Uh, I went to. I started in, a, in an area called Brompton, which is a pretty ordinary area over here in Adelaide. And I started at Brompton Infant School, and then I went to Brompton Primary School, and then I upgraded to a higher slum area called uh, Bowden. And um, I went to the Good Shepherd, and then they found out that I wasn't a Catholic. So after a month, I had they got me out of there, and then I, I went along. I headed down to Port Adelaide Way where my parents were, and I did Alberton, Seaton, uh, Hendon, uh, Findon, then I went to uh, Port Adelaide, and then I finished up at Lefevre Tech. And, John, you know, sometimes sometimes I wonder, you know, if, if any of the other teachers had said to me to become a jockey, I mightn't have taken any notice. But this teacher said to me one day, we were in school, and he said, when do you turn 14? And, you know, years ago how we used to, uh, go to school and we get our intermediate when we were 14 and then we could leave. And I said, oh, well, Mr. Manning, I said, I'm 14 July 28. And uh, he said, well, he said, I think I'd be looking for a job if I was you. And I said, why? He said, well, the exams are in September. And I thought, oh, you know. I said, but Mr. Manning, I see my report card every time you bring it in three or four times a year. I said, in all my subjects, I have an F. And he said, yes. I said, that means fair, doesn't it? He said, no, it doesn't. So he said, I'd be looking for a job. <clears throat> so he said, why don't you become a jockey? <clears throat> Excuse me. And John, you know, sometimes, and I, I talk at schools and I talk to kids, and I go around and I tell the kids, and they ask you how you became a jockey. I said, that teacher seen something in me that yeah. I didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he said, and I said, well, Mr. Manning, why, should, why do you think I should become a teacher? He said, well, you know the student that sits alongside you? I said, yes. I said, he's the smartest kid in the class. I said, he always goes top. And he said, well, he said, I did, did mark your exams over the weekend. He said, and in those days, John, we used to sit at a desk and we'd have a briefcase between us mm. and we'd do our desk, you know, just at the same desk, but there was a briefcase between us. And he said, one question that I'd asked this brilliant Stuart was, in what year did, did they discover, or Captain Cook discover Australia? Mm. And he'd written down, I don't know. And he said, and your answer was, uh, I don't know either. <laughs> so, so he thought that that was my time to leave. Yeah, you know what? Yeah. He was yeah, dead so, right. <laughs> yeah, so he said, you've got the perfect credentials to become a, to become a jockey. I said, well, and I'd never ever thought of it, John. You know, I'd never been yeah. near a horse at 13 and I, I wasn't interested. And, 
And he said, I said, what's the perfect credentials, Mr. Manning? He said, well, you're not real big and you're not real smart. <laughs> and, and I said, I said well, is that what you have to be to be a jockey? He said, it helps. <laughs> so I decided, you know, then, John, that day that I would decide, you know, to become a, a jockey. Uh, my mother wanted me to work in a bank and, and, and mum said, you know, I'd, I'd like you to, I come home and told her, she said, I'd like you to get a bank job. And I, I thought, well, where am I going to get a balaclava and a gun that I can carry? <laughs> you know, anyway, I went in and I got, and, you know, honestly, John, this was some things in your life that are meant to be because I went up to the parklands in North Adelaide and there was a horse standing by the fence, no saddle or bridle, and I didn't understand horses. And I just climbed up on the fence and I actually sat on this horse's back. And the moment I sat on that horse's back, yeah. I had a feeling this is where I should be. Mm. You know, I had a feeling and there was a friend of mine and we were only, you know, 13, 14 years of age and, and he gave this horse a slap on the rump and this horse just trotted around in a big circle and came back mm. to the fence. And I said to my mate when I said, I said, Raymond, I said, you know, I said, did you see me tear around the paddock? He said, you wasn't going very fast. I said, I thought I was flying. Mm. And anyway, I found out that mare, she foaled about a fortnight later, but she, <laughs> she wasn't going fast. But I tell you what, John, uh, it made up my mind. It, it was, made up my mind. It was a defining moment. It was. It was, John. And, and oh. after that, and if jockeys, there's, there's some wonderful jockeys out there. And, and if you ask them how, how long they spend with their feet on the ground mm. after they become an apprentice jockey or a jockey. Mm. They don't spend a lot of time walking because they've got barrier trials, they've got mm. races, they've got that, uh, uh, track work. And, you know, we, we spend a lot of time on a horse's back, don't we? Mm. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it was something that – and I found that was just the, the moment that I was tapped on the shoulder and said, become a jockey. Well, acting on Mr Manning's recommendation – you became indentured to a Port Adelaide trainer called Jack Canavan. That's who right, had yes. an enormous influence on your early life. And apart from that pregnant mare, you had never ridden a horse when you went to Jack Canavan's. No, never, never ridden. Uh, John, I was very lucky uh, because uh, he, he, he had... I had four daughters and a son, and I was treated as one of the family. Mm. And I lived in the house... And he taught me, he didn't only teach me, John, about riding. He taught me everything about horses. Mm. Everything that he, he knew, he, he tried to, his son and myself were the same age, and he taught us how to, to give them, remember the old cupus ball when you put your hand down their throat, mm. when you got the gag to hold their mouth open, and yep. things like that, and, you know, to, to trim their feet, and, you know, to, to, to do things that, you know, most kids nowadays, they don't learn those things. No. They don't learn. They 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 learn. They just they're they're bred to ride now. They're bred to ride. John, there's not a jockey alive who doesn't remember the occasion of his or her first win, and your magic moment came at a little place in South Australia called Snowtown. The yes. horse's name was Port Walk, and the second horse was ridden by your idol. Yes, and that was John. That was. The, the, the biggest day in 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 my life, and 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 I, I went to leading up to that. I was only four stone five, John, at the time, <laughs> and uh, and I went to the stewards to get my license, 
and they said I was too small and that I, I would ride in the country for a year and I wasn't allowed to carry a whip, uh, and but I was allowed to wear spurs, but I wasn't allowed to carry a whip and I had to ride in the country and I asked a question. I said, well, uh, why, why aren't I allowed to carry a whip? And they said, well, you've never, ever, ever used a whip on a horse and you might get excited in a race and pull the whip and, and if you're in front at your weight... You pull the whip on a horse, you'll get blown on the horse behind you. And I, I, I couldn't argue with that. You know, I was four stone five. Mm. And I thought, he said, the wind will catch you and blow you back. And I said, well, I'll have to ride without a whip. So I, I, that, the morning of the race, John, you know, you're all excited and, you know, you've got your race bag and, and, and I packed my bag, I think, five times the night before. You know, just going to the races and having the same horse. And I was, the story, I rode him twice that day because we could do that. Um, but on the morning of the race, Colin Hayes had a track at uh, West Lakes. It was his own private track, which was 1,600 metres, which was a mile around. Mm. And we, he used to let anyone use it. And the morning of the race, my boss said, he said, will you trot the old horse around? And he was a steeplechaser. He was a 3,000-metre horse. Mm. And I was on, a, in, on him in a, uh, in a five furlong race, 1,000 metres. <laughs> and he, he said, trot him around the CS's track and just sprint him down a furlong. Because, John, years ago, this is what we used to do. The trainers used to sprint their horses up on the morning of the race. Oh, yeah. And it was more or less, it switched the button on to say, I'm in this afternoon. You know, mm. that's... That's what it was, you know, that's the reason I think that they did it. And the horse knew that he was going to go to the races because he'd sprinted up a furlong. Well, well I trotted him around on my own and, and I sprinted him up a furlong. Now, he weighed a 1,000 pounds. Mm. And after we'd got a complete lap flat out, 1,600 metres, full bore, and he just finally decided that he'd stop. Mm. And I thought, well, <clears throat> I've ruined my first ride in a race. I'm not going to be able to go to the races and ride him because he's just gone a mile. But I walked him home by the beach, and when I got home, I, I, the boss said he was waiting at the gate for him, and he said, how'd he go? I said, oh, he's pretty keen. And he said, uh, did he sprint down a furlong? I said, yes, but I didn't tell him about the other seven furlongs, will it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he said, well, we'll put him, put him away. He said, we'll get ready for the races, and then we'll go. So we went to the races, and... The first race I rode him in was 1,000 metres, and, and he ran third, and there was only four in it, I think. Mm. And, and when we went past the post, I couldn't pull him up. So we went right down nearly round again, mm. and him being a 1,000 pound and me being, you know, four stone five. And Anyway, when we came in, I, I got changed, and I thought, wow, my first ride in a race, and, you know, and, and, and I've run third. I don't care if I never have another ride in a race, I've run a place. Mm. And I got dressed, and the boss came in, and he said, that old horse pulled up all right. I said, yeah, boss. And he said, look, we can run him again if we want to in the last, because those days there's no TAB. Oh. And he said, we can run him again. Do you think he could take another race? <laughs> and, I, and it was a mile and a quarter. Mm. And I, but I wanted to have another ride. And I said, oh, it shouldn't hurt him, boss. I said, he only went a furlong this morning. Uh, I said, and then he only went five furlongs then. Mm. But then I started to add it up, John. You know, like he went a furlong, but then he went a mile as well. Mm. And then he went a 1,000 metres, and then he went another, another, nearly another seven furlongs after that to pull him up. And I said, it shouldn't hurt him, boss. He, I said, he hadn't done much. And <clears throat> he said, well, we'll run him in the last race. So anyway, the last race comes up, and it's a mile and a quarter. And I'm going out on the track, and the clerk of the course come up, and he grabbed him by the bridle, and 
I said, oh, it's, it's okay. I said, I know him. I said, he's one of ours. I said, he's quiet old horse. He said, uh, and of course, those days, the clerks of the courses were voluntary and a lot of them were farmers and that the local area, they worked around and, and he, he looked down at me and he said, son, he said, uh, I've got to milk cows tonight. He said, and I seen you here earlier today. He said, and I don't want to be chasing you after the last. And he said, I've got to be home to milk these cows. And I said, oh, fair enough. So we went down the barrier and the boss said, you know, you'd barrier one I drew. And he said, third on the fence. He said, and then when you get to the half mile, he said, take a break on them because you've got a seven pound claim. So anyway, we, I drew barrier one. I thought, well, I've done the first part of the job. I'm third on the fence. There was only four in it. And we jumped out and I was third on the, going to be third on the fence. But when we went out the straight the first time, I was 10 lengths in front. I couldn't hold him. Yeah. And I thought, I'm not going to get to the half mile. Mm. He told me to get to the half mile and sneak away on him. I thought, if I just get there, I'll be happy. Yeah. Anyway, we got down there. <laughs> That's about the mile, and then down to the seven, and then down to the six, the five. And we're getting near the half mile, and, and then I hear this voice, get off the rail, son. So I moved out off the rail. And then there was another voice, get back on that rail. So I went back onto the rail. And then this went on for the rest of the race. And I went over the line. And when I went over the line, I looked across and I'd won by half a length. Mm. And I looked across and my idol had ran second, Jimmy Johnson. Yeah. And I thought, wow, this is the biggest day in my life. I've beaten beaten my idol, JJ. Mm. Anyway, then I couldn't pull him up. So I went nearly round again and came back into the room and, of course, they, all the jockeys were there and they'd weighed most of the other three in. And, and when, I was, when I was getting changed, Jimmy Johnson came over. He said, I want to see you some before you leave. And, you know, my first day in the jockey's room, John, I thought, wow, what do the older jockeys, do they give the young blokes a belt and if they beat them or what? <laughs> and, and I thought it was the last race, you know. And, mm. and I said, uh, Mr. Johnson, I went over and I said, Mr. Johnson, you wanted to see me? He said, um, yeah. He said, you know why you won the last race? I said, well, must have been, a, I reckon I was on the fastest horse. Mm. He said, no. He said, did you hear that guy call out to you down the back straight, tell you to get off the fence? Mm. I said, yes. He said, that was Peter Kelly. And he said, did you hear the other guy call out to get back on it? I said, yes. He said, that was me. <laughs> and I said, well, how did that help me win the race, Mr. Johnson? He said, well, put yourself in our position. Half mile from home, we got a four-stone kid on a 1,000-pound horse he was off the fence, on the fence, off the fence, on the fence, <laughs> off the fence, on the fence. He said, we didn't know what side of you to go. He, he said, so I won my first race by default. <laughs> so, but it was great to beat JJ. And, yeah. you know, he's 89 now, John. And, yeah. and he's just such, he's been such a mentor to me all my life and, and a wonderful person. Mitovite has been producing high-quality feeds and supplements for all walks of equine life for almost 40 years. Mitovite has become a household name in racing and breeding circles with products like Athlete, Formula 3 and Breeder. Time-tested products in the breeding barn and on the racetrack. 26 thoroughbred Group 1 winners this season have been on a Mitovite feeding regime. From humble beginnings on the New South Wales Central Coast, Mitovite has become a world leader in equine nutrition. Infrastructure investment in the production mill and close attention to nutritional science keeps Mitovite at a standard of excellence developed over four decades. Check the website, mitovite.com, or follow the Mitovite Racing and Breeding Facebook page. 
the Mitovite brand has earned the respect of horse people all over the world. You were 29 years old and well established among Adelaide's top jockeys when the 1972 Melbourne Cup rolled around. It was the first metric Melbourne Cup. At this time, you'd never ridden outside of South Australia, but a phone call changed all of that. Yep, it sure did, John. Um, You know, sometimes you go through in your life um, and and, and things you look back on and you think, it it, it was meant to be 1968. uh, I won the Adelaide Cup on Rain Lover and I'd raced very hard to ride him. I think he had seven, seven stones three. And uh, I don't know what it is now. It's about 45 kilos or something, I think it is, in, mm. in the metric. Uh, and I wasted hard. And I came back in. And, and after the race, Graham Hegney, because most jockeys that you talk to, that my, my first dream in my life as a jockey was to win my hometown cup. Um, most jockeys will say a Melbourne cup. But mine was to win the hometown cup because I thought, you know, uh, I, I, I might never, ever get to the Melbourne cup, but I'd love to win my hometown cup. And... And I won it on Rain Lover, and I came in, and Graham Hegney, who'd won it in, in, in 63 with Gadam Gadam, Graham looked up at me, he said, you know, son, he said, uh, he said, in another few months, he said, you're going to be riding the horse that's going to win the Melbourne Cup. And I thought, wow, because Rain Lover was only a three-year-old then, mm. and, and, and uh, he, he would have turned four. And uh, I thought, wow, you know, I've got a ride in the Melbourne Cup, I've got a live chance, and, you know, how lucky am I? Uh, Graham took ill and the horse went to Mickey Robins mm. uh, Mickey done a wonderful job with him he won two Melbourne Cups in a year mm. when, he, when he took him over from Graham and that was to me I thought you know you get that opportunity in your life that, and, and, and it didn't happen and it, it most likely will never happen again um, along came Piping Lane and six days before the race I was get a phone call and, and I, I hadn't ridden out South Australia was, you know, I was South Australian jockey and, and didn't travel. And I was, I was, the phone call came through and it said, is that John Letts on a Wednesday morning? I said, yes. And they said, have you got to ride in the Melbourne Cup next week? And I thought, and then I thought, John, I, I thought now I'm trying to recognize this voice because I reckon it's one of my mates. Yeah. Having a trying to be a bit Yeah. <laughs> he's either been out late or he's trying to be smart. Mm. <clears throat> Anyway, I said, as a matter of fact, I said, I haven't. I said, but I, I said, I'm waiting for Bart Cummings, Colin Hayes, or Tommy Smith to ring me. <laughs> and I knew that wasn't going to happen. Because yeah. uh, Bart and Tommy uh, and uh, Colin had heard of me, but Tommy Smith had most, most hadn't heard of me. But, uh, and he said, oh, well, you've got a ride. I said, and you know, John, I could have nearly lost the ride. Because I said, no, no, actually, I haven't. And I said, what weight's a horse got? He said, 48 kilos. And... And I said, what's his name? He said, Piping Lane. Mm. And he said, have you heard of him? And I'd, I'd never heard of Piping Lane, mm. but I couldn't say I hadn't heard of him. Mm. So I said, yes. And he said, uh, he goes all right. I said, oh, yeah, he does. And I thought, mm, you know, I've just sort of, I, I've got to ride in the Melbourne Cup. This is, this is my dream now. My dream now was to ride the Melbourne Cup. Anyway, when I went, went, went to Melbourne to ride in the Melbourne Cup and uh, before I went there, I went on a TV program on a Saturday night and, and it was the Adelaide Tonight Show with Barry Ian and asked me some questions because at that stage, John, and, and you, know, you know yourself being involved in racing, it's very hard for a South Australian or a Western Australian, you know, the, 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 uh, the Western states getting jockeys, getting rides in the races more. The Eastern state boys get, you know, in those days got the, the best horses, weren't they? 
and 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 he said um, he uh, he asked me some questions. Uh, he said, "You're riding a horse in the Melbourne Cup next Tuesday, John." I said, "Yes." And he said, um, "You know everything about him?" I said, "Yes." He said, "You know what weight he's got?" I said, "He's got 48." He said, "Do you know where he raced last?" I said, "Yes." I said, "He raced last at, at say I can't remember now, but it would say it was uh, he raced in Launceston." And and then he said, "Do you know where he finished?" I said, "Yes." I said, "He said, Do you know what the track was like?" I said, "Yes." He said, "You you know what Barry?" Cut? I said, "I know everything about him." And he said. Uh, What's his name? And I said, Palace Lane. And he said, you mean Piping Lane, don't you? I said, yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, everything started off fantastically well for me. Mm. Yeah. But, John, there's so many wonderful stories out of Melbourne Cups that a lot of people don't hear. Uh, I, I went to Melbourne to have a look at Flemington because I'd never been there. Mm. And, and on, on the Monday morning, I was going to have a look at it and I slept in. Mm. And I thought, well, I, I, I'd, I'd better, I'd better have a look at it Tuesday morning before I go back to the races, mm. uh, because I'll be there in the afternoon. And I slept in again. Mm. And so when I went downstairs from the motel, I went down. And I said to the young girl, "Could, could you get me a taxi to Flemington, please?" She said, uh, "I'm sorry," she said, "but you won't get a cab today." She said, "They're all booked out." And I thought, "Oh, how am I going to get to Flemington? I've got to ride, I've got to ride the Melbourne Cup." Mm. And I so my brother, luckily my brother was playing golf in Melbourne. I rang him and I said, Wayne, look, I've got to ride in the Melbourne Cup today. He said, yeah, well, it was 100 to 1 chance, John, you know, 80 to 100 to 1 chance. And, mm. and my brother said, yeah, I noticed that. And he, I said, could you get me out the track? He said, look, I'll pick you up and drop you at the gate. So he came to the motel, he picked me up, he drove me out. And you know where you drive in, it's like a horseshoe, you, the, the member's gate, you get dropped off with a cab or you get dropped off in a hire car or whatever, mm. and you just walk in the gate, in the members. Now, in Adelaide, I could do that easily because I'd been here for years, you know, and the guys on the gate, you know, what's your best today, let's see, or, you know, you got a good ride and just say, you didn't even have to show your badge. Mm. But Flemington's a little bit different on Melbourne Cup Day. Because they give those guys, you know, white coats and, you know, the sheriff's badge on the side. <laughs> and I walk, went to walk through the gate and this guy said to me, where are you going? As my brother dropped me off out the car, I said, in here. He said, what for? Now, I was about, I was, a, I was the size of a little pygmy. Mm. I had a saddle on one arm, yeah. a bag of race gear on the other. I was at Flemington on the first Tuesday in November I'm walking through the member's gate towards the jockey's room. Now, why would I be going there? Mm. And he asked me why I was going in there. Mm. I said, I'm the plumber. And he said, well, the plumbers, <laughs> use the, the plumbers use the gate down there. And he sent me down to the gate, down where the plumbers go through. Yeah. So now, I walked in there, and then I walked into the room, and, and just to experience walking in there, and I, I walked in, and I, I knew some of these jockeys that had ridden in Adelaide, like Roy Higgins, one of the champion jockeys, mm. uh, Harry White, and there was Pat Highland, and there was Mitch Denham, Bobby Shield. There was all of the champion jockeys were there, you mm. know, and the, from Australia and New Zealand. And I looked around, I thought, gee, all of these champion jockeys, and then there's me. <laughs> and, and I thought, I've got, you know, they brought the colours in, and they said uh, George Hannon's got four runners, I think it was, in the race, and in the, and they, when they brought the colours in, they said, he'll see you out in the mounting yard. Well, the, the, the story is, and it's a true story, I never spoke to George Hannon before the race. Mm. I never met the owner before the race. I never got any instructions before the race. And I never, ever did see Piping Lane again 
because I only seen him as I walked out to get on him. Mm. Uh, and those are some of the stories out of it. But I really feel, John, that being in the position that I never met and got any instructions because he had he talked to the other three jockeys, and I, I think that helped me win the race because I went out there not having to prove yeah. that I could do what he told me. Yeah. Now, John, if we yeah. don't start to roll along a bit, we'll have four segments. <laughs> <laughs> now, mate, you followed a well-known horse in that Melbourne Cup who was drawn yep. alongside you in the barrier, a horse yep. called Gunsind. The great one. Yep, the great one. He was. He drew barrier 10, I drew 11. I'll never forget it, John, and Higgs was mm. on him. Mm. And when I walked in the gate, I thought, you know, I'll follow Gunsend every step of the way because Higgs knows his way around. He's one on red-handed, one on light fingers. Mm. And I knew Roy when, when he came from Adelaide. And, you know, when the gates opened, it was the first time in his life that Gunsend missed the jump. And I was in front of him, <laughs> and I thought, "Oh, don't follow me, Roy, please. You, you don't know. I don't know where I'm going. Mm. You know, <laughs> I'll just, I'm just in the pack. I'm just going to follow along. You know, do hopefully everything goes all right. But everything, everything in the race worked out uh, opposite to what I thought it would, John. Yeah. And yet, yet you come out, you come out a winner. Eight years later, you did it again on the American-bred Belldale Ball, trained by Colin Hayes. Colin actually wanted you to ride another one of his horses initially, didn't he? Gay Trebo. Gay Trebo. Mm, mm, mm. Mm. So how did you, know, how'd you get on the other one? John, you know, the stories about how you get on these horses in Melbourne Cups. Now, I'd never heard of Belldale Ball, but I, 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 went, I went to Mooney Valley to ride a horse called Tollhurst, who I'd won on in Melbourne, a, a, a group one I'd won on him in Melbourne. Johnny Hawks had him, mm. and, and, and Johnny Hawks for him, he said, you go to Melbourne Saturday and ride Tollhurst in the Cox Plate. I said, no, no, I'm not going. I was going to ride here in Adelaide. He said, no, no, you're going to Melbourne. He said, because you're riding Tollhurst in the Doncaster, and, and he said, you've ridden, a, you ride her, and he said, and the owner wants you on both horses. I thought, well, I, I, she's a very good mare, mm. and, and I thought, I'd better stick, so... I knew he had no chance because he was a seven furlong horse, but it was a mile a quarter. Uh, and, and I went over there, and while I was there, Colin Hayes put me on a horse in the, in, in the Mooney Valley Cup. And in the mounting yard, she actually stubbed her, stubbed her toe on, on, on the rubber bricks that they have in there and, and put a nail through the, her hoof. And the vet came over and said, we'll have to scratch her. And Colin actually talked the vet into letting her run. He said, look. He said, there's a spot of blood there. He said, but he said, let John take her to the barrier, and if she's not right... Scratch her. Mm. So the vet said, okay. So I took her to the barrier, put her in the gate, and she drew one, and she had a nice run all the way. She was just behind the two leaders, and one of those leaders was Bill old Ball outside the leader. Mm. And, and Higgs rode him, and, and anyway, when I, when I pulled up, I see her, I said, how'd she go? She ran last. I said, she went terrible, see so I said, she's not lame, but she just, she's not there today. And, he, and, he, and I said, what was that horse you had in the race that set up outside the leader? He said, oh, he's a horse called Belldale Ball. He said, uh, I said, the one in Robert Sangster's colours? He said, yes. Mm. He said, but he said, he, look, he's a non-trier. He said, I've got a horse called Gay Trebo. He said, jump on him. He said, he's won three or four of his last five. He mm. said, he, he's got a real chance in the race. And I said, no, I want to ride him. And it's as if John, as if someone had told me, stick with him. You know, mm. I didn't know him, but stick with him. Anyway, I, I, he, he said, I'll give you till tomorrow morning to make up your mind. So Sunday morning, he rang me and he said, what are you, you going to do? I said, I'm riding Bill Ball. He said, okay, you picked the wrong one. I said, fair enough. So then I rode him on the Saturday and he ran second behind Bohemian Grove, went very well. And then I said to Robert Sankster, I said, you'll win the Melbourne Cup on Tuesday with this horse, mm. Robert. And he said, uh, uh, Bohemian Grove? I said, no, Bill Ball. 
He said, oh, I think the other one will beat you again. And, he, and I said, you'll win the biggest race in the world on Tuesday. And he said, you know, John, he said, I've won Kentucky derbies, I've won derbies, English derbies. He said, I've won races all around the world. He said, a two-mile handicap to me. He said, I am a racing purist. He said, I love weight for age. I love three-year-olds. And he said, the Melbourne Cup, he, he, he said, is not up there with them. And I said, oh, fair enough. So anyway, after the race, I spoke to Robert and we, we, were, we, were, we just had a coffee after the race. And I said, what did you think of the Melbourne Cup, Robert? He said, the Melbourne Cup is the greatest race in the world. Did he? <laughs> yeah, and, and he meant it. Yeah. And, and at the presentation, I had to laugh, John, because CS, Colin Hayes, they, at the presentation, he said, you know, Colin, Beldale Ball, he's won the Melbourne Cup. And he said, yes, he said, I always knew he was a good horse. <laughs> I'd have been on the other one if I had listened to him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hey, John, you broke a million bones in your thirty-year career in the saddle. Yeah. Luckily, most of them were minor breaks, but one of them was very serious, and it put you in the paraplegic ward of an Adelaide hospital for six months. And doctors yeah. were pretty concerned, weren't they? They, they, they were, John. Uh, you know, jockeys. We, we talk about injuries. Jockeys talk about injuries, but. All jockeys have injuries. It's 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 the nature of the beast, really. It it it, it happens. It's it's like it's like in harness racing or galloping racing. There'll always be injuries. No one's no one gets left out. That they they follow you everywhere. And and, and I went to Gawler and, and it was the last race of the day. And I was, I was running third on the fence in in a field of about ten. And, and the horse in front of me dropped dead. Mm. And I went straight over the top of him and, and fractured my neck. And they told told me, well, I didn't wake up for a couple of days, but they told my mum that uh, mother that I was I was a quadriplegic and then then a paraplegic because I got feeling back in my hands. Mm. Uh, I spent six months in in the Royal Adelaide Hospital with a with a nurse, a sister called Sister Adamson, and she was just fantastic to me. She was mm. one of the loveliest ladies I'd ever met. And you know, John, it's funny. I, I woke up after two days, and she, she used to back me all the time, and I di- I didn't know. I didn't know Sophie then, and I looked up and she said, oh, Johnny, she said, I'm so glad you picked my ward. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't honor. have any say in it. What an <laughs> honour. I, I didn't even know where I was. Yeah. But, but I spent six months in there, John, and, and, and I've got to tell you, and this is a true story, and, and, uh, but I, I, I was in there and Sister Adamson said, oh, you're going home in a week, John. She said, you'll be able to sit up and you'll wriggle your wriggle your legs and then you'll, you'll be able to have, have you know, I mean, you, you, you're, you're lying on your back with a sandbag either side of your head and you're in traction for, for mm. months and, and, you, and you don't sort of get out of the bed. They move you every two or three hours, and which mm. is very uncomfortable for you, but, but you have to put up with it. And she said, you're going home in a week. I said, could, could you leave me for two weeks? I said, I'm running an SP here at the moment. I said, I'm winning. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a true story. And it was with the, with the guys, the orderlies. <laughs> I was running an SP. So, so I, I wished I'd have gone home earlier because they had a good trot after that. But, but, yeah, but I, uh, I, I went to Melbourne after I got, got back. And, and John, you know Geoffrey Lane. I, oh, must, yeah. I must tell you this story. Geoffrey Lane wrote to me, and I didn't know Jeff, mm. and, and we've became, become good mates since. But Geoffrey Lane wrote to me from Hong Kong. And he, he wrote me a letter and he said, John, he said, I heard about your unfortunate accident. He said, what I want you to do when you come out of hospital he said, I want you to come to Hong Kong. I will get you the best doctors in the world. 
I will pay all expenses. And he said, you come up here, and he said, and we'll try and get you back in the saddle. And that was that was Jeffrey Lane. And I never knew him, John. No. No, great A man, wonderful Jeffrey. person. He wonderful person. Um, I, I went to Caulfield. A friend of mine rang me and said, come to Caulfield. And I, I had a surgical collar on, mm. and I was standing by the bedding ring. And 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 I still I couldn't I was I was like Herman Munster you know couldn't move my head yeah it was just permanently fixed like a rusty bolt yeah and I was standing by the betting ring and I was actually breaking the law because I was still a licensed jockey mm. and 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 a guy ran past me and my friend was standing alongside me and this guy hit me on the side of the face with his with his shoulder or his elbow and it just went crack and I fell to the ground and my mate said. You're right, and I I turned my head. It's the first time I turned it in 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 seven months, mm. and I said, "My neck." I said, he, "That guy's fixed it," mm. and he picked me up. He said, "Are you okay?" I said, "Look," he said, "I said, give him a hundred," and then I thought, "No, no, we're we're not going to do well today." I said, "Give him 10. <laughs> so anyway, but you know, John, that guy, and I don't know where he is, but God bless him. Yeah, he doesn't know that he did what he did to me. He was running through the ring to have a bet. And, John, he doesn't know what he did. No, and he no. doesn't know who I was. He doesn't know what he did. But he, he was a godsend to me. And, and after that, I came back, told my doctor what happened, and he said, well, in those days, they didn't, they didn't actually uh, recognize chiropractors. Mm. And he said, because we could cut your spinal cord. Mm. And I said, and, and I told him what happened. He said, well, that was, he said, that is a miracle. He said, because he hit you at the right spot, the right pressure, and at the right right place and and he said he everything's and everything was back perfect again john yeah john it was a genuine miracle yeah it was a genuine miracle john and and you know i thank god for that that gentleman but look i don't know him he doesn't know what he did but you know he's out there somewhere and, and i just hope he has a, a long and happy life because he, he's he's bought he, he got my life back to me and johnny let's return to the saddle and the good lord must have thought he owed you one because he arranged for you to win first up your very first ride back was a winner. John, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I rode a horse called Red Camellia. And, you know, you worry. I'd ridden in trials. I'd ridden track work. And, and I thought, can I come back? Can I come back? Mm. And it was at Cheltenham Racetrack. And, you know, John, that was the most emotional day for myself on behalf of myself that I spent on a racetrack because the horse won. And, you know, being the leading jockey here in Adelaide, people just clapped and cheered me on the way back and, I, I, that was the day I, I, I did have a genuine tear in my eye that day. Um, and, and, you know, the, the South Australian public, I, I mean, you're nowhere without the public. You're nowhere without the public. They make you. Mm. And they made me that day. And, and, and I've never, ever forgot. I, I knew it before, but I've never, ever forgotten it since. Well, John, you've been a remarkable competitor. You've had a long-term love affair with the standard bred horse which led you to the unique situation where you held two licences, a jockey's licence and a harness driver's licence. You drove 40 registered winners, and I seem to recall one occasion when you completed a unique double. You rode the last winner at a Melbourne Metropolitan meeting. You jumped in the car, you rushed to Mooney Valley, and you drove the first winner at the trots a couple of hours later. That's right, a horse called Tommy Lachlan. Mm. Tommy Lachlan and, 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 and um, Pat Layla's brother, Jared, got me the drive on it. Mm. He said, I've got your drive. He said, it's got no hope. 
he said, but he said, I've got your drive because I want you to have a drive at Mooney Valley. Mm. And, you know, that was funny that night, John, because uh, there was Vinnie Knight mm. and, 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 and uh, uh, Gavin Lang. I think it was Gavin or, or, or Graham. Mm. And we went over the line and the, because on their backs you can usually tell, we could tell, you know, within an inch or two. Mm. But in the sulky, I didn't know who'd won it. And when we're pulling up, Gavin come up alongside and he said, he said, you won't be Vinnie in a photo. He said, I can't. Mm. <laughs> and I did. And I thought, I, I thought, oh, well, I'll be getting back second. I'm happy, you know. Yeah. But I did beat it. So it was a wonderful memory, wonderful memory. Now, John, casting modesty aside, you were pretty good at the caper, driving those paces. Yeah, we had, we had, a, we had a fair bit of luck, John. We, we drove a few winners. Well, I was lucky I... I was I was lucky. I drove in in Sydney and I drove in Perth and I drove in Macau mm. and, and and Adelaide, of course. But I, I was lucky. I, I drove a, a few winners there and and I, you know, John. I think the reason that I went to it was because I grew up with a lot of guys that went into the harness world. And and I'll, I'll tell you something about the harness the harness industry, John. Mm. And and I, I really feel that this this is really genuine. You can learn so much from harness trainers. In, even in our industry, we can learn from harness trainers. You know, John, we put a saddle on, we put a bridle on, we put a set of shoes on, mm. and then we put a jockey on, and we run around the circle. Mm. Okay? But you have a look, and you've been involved, when you get horses, and when I first started in horses, there was, now you can put the blinkers on and off them during the race. You have shortness coming out the barrier that makes the hobbles go longer when you pull a cord and the nails come out of the, mm. out of the, out of the hobbles. Yeah. Uh, you, you, have, you, you have garters, you, you, you have uh, spreaders, you have uh, knee boots, and you, all your shoes are done different. Mm. Um, I, I, when, I, when I first went into harness racing, it, it was just like getting dressed up to go to the dance sometimes when you put all this gear on. <laughs> and, you know, you, you have, you have uh, earplugs and, mm. and, 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 and things like, you know, that thing, John, I don't know what they call it, but it goes, goes across their nose and it looks like a broom. And it, <laughs> yeah. it, I mean, we, we, we didn't experience any of that. Yeah, that's called a stone veil. Oh, a, right. A, yes. a stone veil. It, it can be used for two reasons. Uh, some horses are very sensitive uh, to the grit, the tiny little particles coming up off the wheels and hitting them in the face. Yes. So that uh, that veil protects them from that sensation. And if you get a horse who won't concentrate on his racing, a horse whose mind is somewhere else, uh, that stone veil flapping around on their nose can just distract them, just take their mind off whatever was worrying them. Oh, right. Well, I, I, I always thought it for, for horses that jump shadows. You know, as you know, horses, you know, you put the nose roll on and, you, yeah. and, and, and they jump shadows. Well, I thought I thought it was for that. No. Well, that's what it's called, a stone veil, and I always understood that it, it had two purposes, as I've just explained to you. Right. Yes, yes, yes. John, you know, one night I, I, was, I, was, went to the, I rode at Cheltenham and I, I had to go to um, out to Globe Derby to drive in the first, and I rode for a guy named Alan Hunter. You remember Alan Hunter? Hunter mm. Products? Yep. And I rode a mare called Lara Tabella. She was a very good trotter. And, 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 I was, and Chris Laird was the trainer, and, I, and Chris said, I'm putting you on Lara Tabella tonight. And I said, no, I, I, I haven't driven a square gator before, Chris. I said, mm. I, I'd like driving the paces, but I don't want to drive a square gator. Mm. And he said, well, look, Ray Gable's driving his own horse, he said, and Ray said to put you on it. Now Ray was always—he he was great with the square gators. You know, he was—he—he he was 
fantastic. He was like the Langs, you know, like like Graham Lang. Mm. They really got the square gators going really good. And and we, we're walking around before the mobile starts up, and this is a true story. And I had never driven a square gator before. And I said to Ray, I drew alongside him, I said, Ray, I said, when we get going, I said, tell me if this horse is pacing or trotting. I said, because I've never driven a trotter. <laughs> <laughs> and he, and I, he said, you're not fair, Dinkum. I said, Chris put me on it. I said, I didn't even know I was driving it. <laughs> anyway... I went and it trotted because she felt sorry for me, so she trotted. She won, but she trotted all the way. You know, John, I didn't know. I really didn't know. She didn't have hobbles, but I didn't know whether whether she'd pace. But I said to him, if she paces, tell me and I'll try and do what you blokes do, try and make them trot. <laughs> so, so we went to the first corner and she trotted beautifully all the way. Yeah, good on you. Well, mate, um, look, we could go on for three days. Three Adelaide Cups. Five Goodwood handicaps. You mentioned Johnny Hawks earlier. You won a derby for him on Galena Boy. It was probably the big race win that got him going. Yes, uh, yes, it certainly was. It you won beautiful. on Ming Dynasty for Bart. Uh, John, your story is uh, just amazing. It's it's so full of fun and full of stories and full of success and achievement. When I think of you riding racehorses and flashing past the post in front, do you know my most vivid memory of Jay Letts winning a big race? Mm. It often flashes into my mind. The 1977 Epsom, you yes. rode a, an imported English horse called Raffendale. He was one of the prettiest greys I've ever seen and at full stretch he used to stream his tail out behind him I can still see you coming down the straight at Randwick with that grey horse and his tail stuck straight out behind him. It's one of the prettiest sights I've ever seen on an Australian race course, and you were the rider. Well, John, you know, Graham Pethick, who owned that horse, he, he, he said to me, I've got a pair of horse, and I seen him run, and I said, take him interstate, because I was living interstate at the time, mm. and he had another horse, and, you know, sometimes I've always got a better one home. Yeah. Uh, and Graham said to me, he said, do you think dub this horse is all right? Uh, Raffendale, he said, you won't, you, you see Double East. And I said, I'll have the grey one. And Double East, so I didn't win a race, <laughs> and Raffendale was a great horse. Wasn't he? Mm, great horse. Well, Jono, I've looked at the timepiece, and uh, I'm afraid we've exhausted uh, our supply, but uh, it's been a delight I didn't know where to start and I didn't know where to finish, so I just did the best I could. <laughs> uh, we've had a great talk, John. It's always lovely to talk to you. You know that. Letsy, congratulations on all you've achieved in many different uh, spheres. Uh, whatever you've tried, you, you finished up mastering and uh, it's a life you can look back on with great pride and great satisfaction. Someone said to me the other day, John, you know, and I don't know whether it's an old saying or not, so someone said to me the other day, how would you like to be remembered? I said, I'd just like to be remembered, that's all. I said, not for one special thing, I'd just like to be remembered. <laughs> I can guarantee, my boy, you will be. And this uh, podcast has been produced by Supernova Sound and my guest, racing icon, Johnny Letts. Thanks, John. Trainers strive to have horses spot on for race day. Fuel cells up 
the right mental state, the right fitness levels. Equally important is the horse's capacity to recover quickly from racing and track work. The aim is to give owners every opportunity to win optimum prize money by keeping a horse in training for as long as possible. High Gain Recuperate is a powerful blend of electrolytes, B-group vitamins and vitamin E in paste form which can be administered after fast work and in the days leading up to a race to assist recovery. 30ml of Recuperate drawn from the 500ml bulk pack is the economical alternative to individual electrolyte and vitamin paste syringes. High Gain Recuperate powers performance and recovery. Visit the High Gain website and use promo code johntap.racing to receive 15% off your next Recuperate purchase.